Amen. If you have a Bible, we're in Romans chapter 5 tonight. So we have uh, covered uh, the first four chapters in great detail. We will cover through verse number 11 tonight. I think we're going to get into a lot of really good stuff this evening. If uh, For years and years and years, I would always tell people Romans 5 is my favorite chapter of the Bible. Um, I, I would always, uh, uh, I, haven't, I haven't preached it that much in, in the grand scheme of things. So uh, I am blessed to be able to uh, preach what uh, is, uh, what is my, uh, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, one of the few chapters that um, years and years ago I committed as much of it as I could to memory. I don't say that to brag, but I, I do say that to say that it is doable. Um, if you want to be a student of God's Word and you really want to commit God's Word to memory, just read it and read it and read it and read it, and eventually it gets uh, it gets stuck somewhere up here. Um, I love Romans chapter 5. It's got so much uh, truth and so much grace to offer us, and I believe that we will come out on the other side of this chapter or at least the first 11 verses uh, of this chapter, I believe we'll come out on the, better, on the other side, better Christians, more devoted Christians, or primed and positioned to be more devoted Christians. Uh, I really believe that. So um, let's get kind of the, the stage set for us tonight, though. Romans has taken us down a very particular pathway. Maybe you would call it a road, and maybe you've heard Romans before, you've, heard, you've seen Romans outlined before uh, under the title, under the moniker, the Romans Road, which is a very appropriate appropriate way of, of categorizing Romans or breaking down Romans because there is a very particular straight line through the book that, that has some stops along the way, kind of like interstate has some uh, exit ramps. There are specific um, exits or ramps that you get off of in the book of Romans that deal with a particular subject or theme. Um, so the first stop that we covered way, way back in, in January, the first stop that we covered was the subject of sin. And as it turns out, it was a subject that uh, speaks to all of us and addresses all of us because all of us are affected by sin. There is none that have been unaffected by sin. There are none that are untouched and unplagued by sin. But thankfully, uh, that was just the first stop of our journey down this Romans road. The next stop was around the subject or around the person of God, because though we are all affected by sin, though we are all uh, under the curse of sin, God is pursuing all of us. We are guilty before him, we are accountable to him, and we best find a remedy for sin to be on good terms with him. But the, good, the, the solution given us to in Romans is that God is pursuing us. And as Paul told us in chapter one, God wants to save us, which is obviously that, that's a word of hope and a word uh, of promise that yes, we need to be saved. So we talked about why we need to be saved, which is because of sin. But God wants to and desires to and has made a way for us to be saved. Now, if you have been with us, we've talked a lot about religion and we've learned quickly that religion is not how we find a solution to sin and it's not God's uh, provision to overcome sin. Paul uh, made a, a pretty lengthy discussion about why religion isn't the answer, whether it be Judaism for the Jews or paganism and all the other religions that the, the world uh, uh, tried to utilize to get to God. Uh, he, he will touch on this again in Romans 7, uh, but Paul has made it clear and we 
have talked about it in depth, uh, that we need a miracle in order to be saved. And a miracle is beyond our ability to perform. Uh, Religion does not offer us that miracle. If we're going to beat the battle of sin and with sin, we need God's intervention. In fact, um, while we were at the stop, uh, at this stop concerning God and sin and us, uh, we realized, and, and, and what's incredible that we learned along the way, uh, is that sin, even though it's our fault and it's our problem, God has said, it's my battle. I'm going to take this problem on my shoulders for you which is the incredible kind of abrupt turn, if you will, in the book of Romans. No one would expect God after he has just caused or charged us as guilty in our sin. Romans introduces us to a God who is not wanting to condemn us in our sin, but rather he has offered to remove our sin from us and take our sin on his own shoulders and take responsibility for the sin that we have committed. Now, if that sounds perplexing, if it sounds too good to be true, well, that's where we come to the gospel, which is good news. That is the heart of the book of Romans. Back in Romans chapter one, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would you be? Why would the gospel, why would you be at all disappointed in the gospel? Because when we are confronted with our sin and we are aware of a God who is holy and perfect, the good news reminds us that God has made a way for us, whereas we had no other way apart from him. This world is full of bad news. Left to ourselves, we are filled with bad news. But God has intervened in our world and God has intervened in our hearts and has brought us good news. Good news. Now, this is the message the whole Bible preaches on every page. This is the message the New Testament proclaims on every page. Verses like this, this is one that you probably haven't read a whole lot. Titus 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, and the emphasis there is that we could not get to it, it appeared to us, bringing salvation for all people. Those two words are very important because it's not something that we obtain, that we find, that we discover. God appears to us and God brings it to us. We could not get to it on our own if we knew where it was we would not go to it on our own God has appeared and brought good news has brought salvation to all and for all people isn't that the Christmas story when the shepherds are just in the field unaware all of a sudden the the sky rips open literally the sky rips open and angels walk out from the other dimension and proclaim I bring you good news of great joy for all people You weren't looking for it. You couldn't get to it on your own, but I have brought it to you. That's good news. Uh, But the message of Romans, the Romans 4, in our most recent stop, um, makes it very clear that while this good news was brought to us and while this good news is apart from us and exists without us, there is a decision that we've got to make in order that it be our good news, in order that it be our own salvation. We learned in Romans 4, the gospel will always be good over us. It does not need our cooperation or affirmation to be good. It's good without us. The gospel will always be good over us, but it will only be good for us and in us if we put our faith in it, if we put our trust in it. So we see a very important kind of a milestone in the book of Romans. We've talked about sin. We've talked about God. We learned about the gospel. 
And now we have learned that we must make a decision knowing all these things, knowing that we are sinners, knowing there's a God we're accountable to, knowing he has brought us good news. What will we then do with this good news? Romans invites us to put our faith in it. And if we trust in it, trust it to be more defining and more delightful than our sin. You know, a lot of times we can't get over the fact that we see ourselves, we define ourselves as guilty and as condemned, but the gospel invites us to see ourselves forgiven of that sin, freed from that sin. The gospel invites us to see ourselves defined in God's love and by God's love. God wants to redeem us and we must trust him and trust his arm has reached out to us. We must also find our delight in him or trust that we will be more pleased and more delighted in him than we will anywhere or anyone else. We are delighted that God has better for us and can revive us. Whereas we are unrighteous in our sin, we are made righteous by faith. We've talked about that word a lot, unrighteous. Unrighteous means we are not right with God. We are not uh, whole in our flesh. We need God to make us right, to give us a righteous nature, which is from Jesus, what he did for us, given to us. So we've kind of covered three big points of the gospel. It, It means to be forgiven by God, delivered by God and empowered by God, which is, we're gonna camp out on that third point tonight. Forgiven of our sins, delivered from the consequences of our sin and empowered to live life as it was always intended to be, which is really what chapter four focuses on or prepares us for. Uh, Paul gave us the example of Abraham, remember? He gave us the example of Abraham as proof of what the righteousness of God can do for a sinner like us. In fact, Paul reveals to us that Abraham was chosen way, way back to be the quintessential example of what God can do with someone under the curse of this world. If you ever wonder, why did God pick Abraham? It wasn't because he was looking for God. It wasn't because he was already right with God. It wasn't because he was a squeaky clean, perfect person primed to be the one you know used by God. God picked Abraham because he checked all the boxes of someone who was under the curse of sin and wearing those warts, obviously. You say, well, that doesn't really fit with the way I've understood the world. Well, maybe or understood the way God works. I I hope this is good news for you. What Paul has revealed to us in Romans is that Abraham checked all the wrong boxes when God chose him. He was, had no home. He had no heritage. He was a wanderer. He was weak in his flesh. Remember, he was 75 years old whenever he first began to follow God. And and the reason why that was significant was everybody in his family had had children before age 70. And now Abraham was this wandering man with no home, no heritage, without the ability. He was infertile. He couldn't father a child or it seemed as if he or his wife, one of them or both of them were infertile. Uh, He was a bad husband as well. And and I don't need to go into detail, but he lied several times and put his wife at jeopardy. Uh, He was immoral. We, We don't have to go into that, but he was not always faithful to his wife. So Abraham was not a godly person. In fact, he was ungodly. He was unrighteous, which is why God picked him. Abraham is the surrogate for every one of us. Abraham is just like us, weak and sinful. And that is the person that God chose to make himself known to. 
And what we discovered last week and what we concluded is the backdrop of Abraham's frailty made for the perfect display of God's resurrection power. What did Romans 4 say? Abraham was weak in his flesh. He was as good as dead spiritually and physically. He was 90 plus years old before even 99 before he fathered a child. All that stuff was working against him. Yet God picked him to make example and make a display of his resurrection power. How he can take someone who was considered to be done for in every way possible and exercise and work his power through them to use them as an example of what God can do. That resurrection power is the reactor that produces salvation. And Paul, at the end of Romans 4, which we'll pick up at verse 23, Paul says this, connecting Abraham to us. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, as in God picked him and gave him righteousness, even though he wasn't worthy and didn't ask for it. God picked Abraham and imputed to him the gift of salvation, the gift of righteousness. It was not written for his sake alone, but also for us, which I asked you to underline that last week. And if you didn't, I would encourage you to underline or highlight that again tonight. But it was written for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered because of our offenses or our trespasses, our sins, and raised because of our justification or for our justification. So you see the connection there? Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus' resurrection brings the promise of Abraham to us, to everyone. The reason why Paul's made a big deal about Abraham is Abraham was before the law. Abraham was before Moses, before the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai. Abraham was 400 years before that. God, or more than that, before that, God picked Abraham and showed Abraham the way that he was going to do it in the future, not through the law, not through religion, not through the Old Testament, but through something new, someone new, and that was Jesus. And the promise of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection brings the promise of Abraham, the true spirit of salvation, to everyone. What Abraham experienced and what kickstarted the entire people group hoping for restoration and salvation from this fallen world chronicled the Old Testament, summarized in Hebrews 11, if you want to read that as a short summary of it. Uh, all of what they believed in or hoped in is poured out in full for all who trust in Jesus death and resurrection to bring that salvation. Whereas God turned his head from Abraham's sin. You know, God didn't, Abraham's sin wasn't under Jesus' blood. Jesus hadn't come yet, right? Thousands of years later, he would come. God turned his head from Abraham's sin. But our sin, your sin and my sin, and of course, Abraham's sin in retrospect, God placed all sin on Jesus so that it might not be ours anymore. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he took our sin off of us and placed it on Jesus so that he might take the righteousness of God and place it on us. More than that, put it in us. The renewal that Abraham experienced, his new name, his miracle child, his legacy and dynasty through the resurrection of Jesus, we also take on that new identity and we take on a new life. That phrase justified is important to understand the true manner, for us to understand the true manner of salvation. Uh, We are justified before God in two ways. And I wanna, we'll we'll jump into Romans 5 uh, talking about this. We are justified before God in a legal sense. 
in a legal sense, but also as justified or being justified, our lives here on earth take on new meaning. And you could say that we find a new reason to live. You see, when something is justified, that means there's a legitimate reason for it to exist, right? When you say, well, that justify, or there, there is justification for that, or that is justified because of that, you are saying there's legitimate reason for that to be a thing, uh, understanding its purpose. So when we hear the word justified by Jesus, justified by his resurrection, isn't that what, isn't that what verse 25 says? He was raised for our justification. So when you see that phrase, he was raised for our justification, that's twofold. We are propped up before God in Christ for judgment day. So therefore we are justified before God for judgment day in the future. When God sees us, we are propped up by Jesus. When God sees us, he sees Jesus. He sees no sin. He sees righteousness. That's the basic idea of what justification means. But there's a second part of it, and that pertains to what our lives are like right now, every day until that day. We are raised up by God in Christ for every day until. Does that make sense? We are given a legitimate reason to live and make each day count because we have been justified by the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, our lives take on a significance that we may underestimate at times, but you have been given a resurrection life from Jesus and you haven't been taken straight to heaven. You've been left here on earth to live a life that was impossible apart from salvation. We're about to talk about over the next handful of chapters, what Christianity looks like in an everyday sense. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, and then later on 12, 13, and 14 deal with what our lives look like as believers in an everyday kind of faithfulness. Uh, Romans 5 through 8, 8 are very practical oriented. You've heard me use that phrase a lot. Practical means that it gives you something to practice. It gives you something to do every day or a way to live it out. Paul is very concerned with how we live our lives, how we live our faith out here on earth. He wants us to know there is a legitimate cause for us to live for God every single day. Every day we are justified by Christ and every day there is a justified, there is a legitimate reason for us to live under the power of God's, uh, Jesus' resurrection. Resurrected life, in fact, indeed, it promises us heaven but it no less prioritizes our earthly lives and pertains to our calling to serve God each day. You know, I think when we hear the word resurrection, a lot of times we immediately think spiritual. Isn't it true? When you hear resurrection, you think, well, that's something to do with heaven. That's something to do with the spiritual body or the spiritual life. And a lot of times we hear resurrection and we only think about the spirit. But Jesus did not walk out of his grave just as a spirit, did he? What did he say to the disciples in the, uh, the upper room that night as he walked out of the grave? He, he showed them the scars in his hand. The next week, he gave Thomas the ability to touch him. He was not a phantom. He was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. He was a living, breathing, fleshly man, and he still is in heaven. He's the only fleshly man in heaven, as a matter of fact. We, of course, will join him one day in our flesh. Everyone in, uh, by faith will be resurrected. Their bodies will be resurrected. 
But the point of it is, true life is available to Jesus' followers now, as seen in the book of Acts, as seen in the New Testament, as commanded and outlined here in Romans. As with Abraham, we receive the life of God in our flesh. Now, yes, there's some tension because we are still in a fallen world. We are still sinful creatures. But the Spirit of God lives in our hearts, in our fleshly bodies. And we have access to, and we have the possibility to live a life that honors God here and now. There is this line of thought um, that Paul was concerned with. And this is why Paul emphasizes this a lot. If you've ever studied, have a study Bible, you've probably uh, heard him. You probably saw this term I'm gonna put on the screen in a minute. There was a Greek philosophy that had began to filter its way through the, into the church in the New Testament age and would really become a problem over time. And there was this line of thought called Gnosticism, silent G, Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this Greek philosophy that said all matter is bad. Everything physical is bad. And really the goal of life is to try to escape this body, escape this matter, material world, escape the flesh, that there is nothing redeemable about matter and flesh and any of the likes. And it didn't take long, and you can see how they would make this connection. It didn't take long for the church to adopt these Gnostic convictions. This idea that our sinful nature rendered our flesh in our physical world beyond repair, totally condemned. So that it didn't matter what we did in this life. And it didn't matter how we lived this life because we were only waiting to be taken out of this world. But the Christian message is not Gnosticism. It's the exact opposite of Gnosticism, actually. Because God has restored us in Christ. And, and here's something that we need to be aware of. And I think it's kind of slipped, slipped its way into the church all these years later. The Gnostic influence is that we will dismiss our responsibility to serve God patiently and passionately in this life. Because we begin to convince ourselves that, well, there's nothing redeemable about this place. Or nothing, you know, I'm just trying to escape this body. And also we lose the joy that's available to us because we don't believe there is any joy for us until we aren't here anymore. There's no biblical strand of Christianity that discourages us seeking our earthly purpose. The Bible teaches the very opposite, which is why we talk about it a lot. In fact, the whole idea of the resurrection of the dead, not just our spiritual salvation, but the whole idea that God is gonna raise up everybody, isn't that what we believe in? That in, at the, in the last day, he's gonna raise up the bodies that were buried and rejoin them with their spirits, with their souls. The very fact that God's gonna raise up our bodies and put our spirits back in our bodies, back on this earth, confirms that God's idea of true life isn't us as phantoms relaxing on clouds. It's us living life on this earth for his glory. So don't underestimate the fact that God, yes, you're, you, you struggle because of sin. Yes, it's not perfect now, but you in your body right now, fill with God's spirit, you have been given the opportunity and the tools you need to discover your responsibility and discover the joy available to believers. Just as Abraham, considered dead, went on to father a nation or two or three or four. Just as Abraham, though he was aged and though he was disabled in many ways, God used his body, used him physically. God wants to use us in that same way. And I don't wanna overlook that because Paul wants us to get that. And wants us to be ready to receive all that he's got for us in Romans. Uh, again, if you read Revelation 21, that, that's a restored earth. There are nations, there are jobs that we will have. I mean, the, the, the eternal future that we consider uh, isn't some ethereal, detached, you know, uh, you know dream state. It's a, we're we're going to be real people living real lives. 
in a much better place, in a much more restored and, and perfect place, of course. But we need to understand that there is this resurrection life, resurrected life, um, is something available to us right now, right here, right now, as children of God, as Christians. And we got to get that right before we get into Romans 5, otherwise we'll be lost. So without further ado, Romans 5, 1, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now you see the word therefore in your Bibles, there's therefore is the first word in the chapter. The reason why I make a big deal about therefore is because therefore is a transition word. And the best way to put it is you best know what it's there for before you read more. Does that make sense? So Romans 5, when you see that word therefore, it's waving flags. Don't read this chapter if you haven't read the first four. Now you would think you would read them in order, but I understand sometimes we just skip around. You won't get all that I've got for you after this verse if you have not read all that came before it, which we just spent a couple minutes making sure we were all on the same page as to what Paul has talked about up until this point. So we know what it's there for, so we can read more. Of course, we know what came before it, thus we know what the next passage is gonna be built on. Therefore is a word that essentially carries the entirety of what precedes this text and says, now that you know the basics, Let's dig in a little deeper. Uh, needless to say, Romans 5 is the next step for us, the next stop for us in our Roman study. Uh, over the next four chapters, we're going to uh, read some of the most important passages of Scripture you'll ever study the, as a Christian. Because in them, we're going to find the most basic description of Christian maturation and development. That's a pretty big deal if that's really where it is most basically spelled out. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 will give you more than a, than a study Bible, and I'm all for study Bibles, more than commentaries. I'm all for that stuff. If you just read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, and you read them and read them and read them again and again and again, you will have the basic outline for what a Christian, uh, what a life following Jesus should look like as you mature and develop. You will know what it means to be filled with Jesus and to be like Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be Christ-filled and Christ-like, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 give you the very basics and you have all that you need in these four chapters to be as devoted as Jesus as anybody that's ever lived. I promise you that. Christ-filled and Christ-like. So as Paul begins breaking down, he's gonna talk to us what it means to be filled with Jesus first and foremost. He talks about the benefits of being justified by faith and he gives us two big ones in that first verse. Therefore, being justified by faith... We have peace with God and grace from God. We, are, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through Jesus, we also have access by faith into this grace. So again, he repeats himself, verse one, by faith, we have peace with God. Verse two, by faith, we have grace from God. We are standing in the grace of God. Peace speaks of our being reconciled to God. Grace speaks of our being restored by God. Peace brings us to God. Grace fills us with and sends us from, made new by God. This is the infrastructure of what a Christian's walk with God is all about. We can approach God and we have access to God always at all times. 
all because of what Jesus has done. There's nothing preventing any of us from approaching God and having peace with him and getting grace from him because Jesus has already made the way for us. If you believe that Jesus did, that's what it means to have faith in Christ. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and you trust that he did that for you, you can walk right up to the throne of God because you have peace with God and before him, you receive grace from him. These two verses are the ultimate dose of what it means to be encouraged and empowered by God. As Paul's about to launch into the Christian lifestyle, the teaching on Christian lifestyle, this is meant to make us pause and reflect. You have peace with God. You have grace from God. God's posture towards you is peace. God's, uh, God's desire for you or his, you know, what he gives to you is grace. You have peace with God. You are standing in grace. Your sin is washed away. You are being restored by grace at all times. Think about it. Think about of it like this. You're standing in a fountain that is being refilled again and again and again and again. The grace of God is pouring out and it's filling the ground. It's covering the ground that you stand on. What if we dwelled on these two promises every single day as we started our lives or started our daily lives? I have peace with God. What's that mean? That means I'm no longer an enemy of God. I'm no longer on bad terms with God. There's nothing I can ever do that can take God's peace away from me. Do you believe that? And do, do you know that? That you have peace with God. You didn't earn it and you can't unearn it because it was given to you through Jesus Christ. You have peace with God and you know what? Yes, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But God says, my response to you is I am giving you grace because Jesus has made this possible. Reconciled and restored. What if we thought on these things every day, all day? Boy, where it would take us would be a lot different than maybe where we end up. And to extend on that, the language Paul uses is calling back to the Old Testament religion, the Old Testament temple model, because there was no access to God. Even the priests were afraid they might fall over dead before God and they had curtains in between them and God and it was all this big rigmarole. They did not get peace with God. They never got grace from God. It was always this anxious, uh, uh, tense uh, uh, ritual. Listen to these verses from Hebrews as Paul kind of pulls from those themes. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, the reason why he uses that word confidence is because in the Old Testament, they were a little bit nervous. They were a little bit worried. I don't know. Maybe you've heard people say before, I don't know if I can go into the church. You know, people like say that flippantly and maybe they really mean it, but you've heard people say that or maybe you've threatened someone before. You better straighten up before you come to church. That's not biblical. You can confidently come to the throne of grace. If it, was, if it was a throne of judgment or a throne of wrath, then yeah, straighten up and try to make yourself better. But the throne of grace has come as you are, trusting that Jesus did for you what you cannot do for yourself. Confidently draw near to God. And, and he says this later on. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not by your works, but by Jesus' work, his death, and that gives us a new and living way. In the temple model, nobody approached God with boldness or confidence because you were bringing your own works to God and there was always uncertainty. Will he accept them? Will, he, will it be good enough? There was no by faith, therefore there was no peace and no grace. 
Worship didn't leave anybody bold or renewed. It left them anxious and exhausted. See the difference in Christianity? We come to God, we can come by faith in what Jesus has already done, which God has already accepted. Through him we have peace and in him we have grace. We receive grace. Imagine, just imagine what our life would look like. Imagine if this was our ground as a Christian. Imagine if we lived under this umbrella constantly. Because I trust Jesus, I have peace with God. I have grace from God. Imagine what kind of mentality we would have, what kind of perspective we would have if we dwelled on these two things. The last part of verse two entertains that thought and speaks of the security this world brings us, this would bring us. It says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This peace with God, And the grace from God will never go away. So we can rejoice as if we've already made it to the very end. You get that? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice knowing that we have what we need to see us to the very end. We're not working our way there. We don't have a little bit of it and got to get more of it. What we have at the beginning is enough to see us to the very end. I think that's pretty good. Wouldn't this kind of attitude and perspective make the difficulties we face, the trials we face, wouldn't it make the struggles we face a lot easier to deal with if we knew that peace and grace aren't going away, so therefore we're gonna get all the way to the end? Well, it's good that you bring up trials and struggles and and hardships and frustrations because Paul (laughs) makes that connection in the next verse. And not only that, We don't only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also glory in tribulations, trouble. Well, that's crazy talk, but he's not done and we better listen. We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, patience, and patience produces character or experience and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, not only are trials easier to bear with this perspective of peace and grace, but trials serve a purpose of strengthening our relationship with God and actually enhancing our fellowship with Jesus. Again, Paul drops this little bit of truth about suffering in here for a very important reason, I think. This is a step-by-step breakdown of the transformation that God can produce in our, through our trials. Remember back in verse two, Paul says, because of our peace with God and the grace from God, we rejoice knowing that we've been given all we need to make it to the very end for God's glory. And of course, that will feature some ups and downs. And sometimes it feels like more downs than ups. But we have no reason to fear or fret because we can see all of our trials as opportunities for God to display his might in delivering power, just like he did in our sin. Which is why he says in verse three, we don't only rejoice in the, glory, in the hope of the glory of God, but we glory and rejoice in tribulations and in sufferings. And what does it say about our sufferings and our trials? He says, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character will produce hope. And we will never get to this kind of hope unless we go through this process. 
Don't misread this. We will not gain this hope unless we go through this path. In fact, there is no process if we don't rejoice at our trials and our struggles. Again, this isn't just about struggling. It's rejoicing and it's glorying. It's being glad. And of course, this is crazy talk to some, being glad in our trials. This is the exact opposite of our emotions. Who in here, who in the world would ever be rejoicing when they face trouble? That's the exact opposite of your emotions. But what have we learned in Romans? Our natural response to anything is not reliable. We need to be saved because our natural response and approach to life is wrong in every way. So why do we ignore the fact that our natural response to suffering, why why do we somehow think that that's okay? (laughs) It's not okay. The Bible teaches us very clearly about suffering and trials. You'd think we'd actually question if we aren't struggling in some way. You'd think we'd get this by now, but James says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials and trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Let, as in I can stop it, maybe you can. Allow, seek out what God is doing. Let steadfastness have its full effect and that you may be perfect and complete, lacking and nothing. Why is, it that, that in, why is it that this is an area that we just don't take the Bible seriously on? We as Christians still look at our trials stone-faced and expect them to just vanish. Quoting verses sideways, thinking that God is somehow obligated to never let us go through them. But what is Paul telling us here? We will never experience the true power of God's peace and God's grace unless we understand what he's doing in our trials. You know, if I study a lot. I study what is going on in the world with the church a whole lot. I've read a lot of books and read a lot of what's going on around the world. And if you study what's going on around the world with Christians and churches, it's remarkable how suffering is so key to the transformation that is being wrought in people's lives. You don't hear people bragging about the trials they face. You only hear people bragging about the glorious things that God is doing in people's lives around the world. But you would not have the supernatural display of God's power if not for the wickedness of this world and the oppression from this world. Right now, there are countries around the world. The scene is similar to the book of Acts. Churches expanding, signs and wonders working all around the church. But you know what else is going on? Blood is flowing through the streets because that's what happened in the book of Acts, isn't it? Afghanistan, Iran, Somalia, North Korea, Yemen, all throughout the Middle East, parts of Asia. Christians are suffering. Christians are being crucified. Christians are being tortured. Listen to this from someone in Somalia. The first time in court, they made us sign our death certificates. They told us that if we did not deny Jesus right now, we must sign our death certificates and be led to death. That was someone's dying confession. They signed their life away. A gentleman in Iran says this, I thank God, isn't this crazy? I thank God for considering me worthy of enduring this persecution because of him. Where have you read that before? A woman in North Korea, 
From the perspective of other people, our life of suffering must seem like a cursed life. However, this suffering is a blessing from our Father. And get a load of this. Who allowed it in our life because it is a shortcut to the Father. Not as in it gets them to heaven quicker. But as in the sufferings they face brings them closer to God. He knows our sufferings, listens to our prayers. We thank him who has done such great things to prepare life for us. Isn't that incredible? You know why they're experiencing such a connection to God? Because they have been disconnected from the world and its comforts. That's an exchange that few of us would be willing to make. But again, what did this lady call it? A shortcut to the Father. Trials produce an enduring spirit which produces a Christ-like character which gives us an out-of-this-world hope. The hope is so strong because we've been emptied of any and all false hopes. Again, verse 5, we've been poured out in our hearts. The Holy Spirit's been poured out in our hearts. Church, we cannot receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit if we are unwilling to rejoice at the pathway he wants to take us down. Regardless of whether or not we're suffering, we must understand that there is no greater place to be than before God in Christ, standing in his grace. We should desire to live from this place, perhaps living at this place and from this place. Maybe it brings more trials on, but most of all, we understand and we rejoice knowing as we come closer to this world's cracks, we come even closer to our Savior's scars. As we feel the cracks of this world, the sufferings from this world, we actually move closer to the very heart of Jesus. And it's in his suffering and his death where we receive his most power, Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the point we've been making. Whether weak in our sin, weak in our flesh, weak under this fallen world's shadow, in our weakness, we are reminded that Christ died for us at our weakest. And these next few verses put an exclamation point on how we can trust God no matter what. Verse seven, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only did Christ die for us at our weakest, he gave himself for us at our most unlovable state while we were still sinners. Yet that did not stop God's commitment to us or his plans for us. So nothing else ever will, verse nine through 11. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, his resurrected life. And not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the atonement or the reconciliation. If we naturally enemies of God have been reconciled to God, have peace with God, we can rejoice in all things and hope through all things. If God is with us and we are with him, no matter where life takes us, we face it with all hope and joy. Our weakness cannot intimidate us. The world's fragility cannot shake us. Satan's tactics should not overwhelm us because we have been justified. We have been saved. God has demonstrated his love for us. He has made his might known to us so we can trust that his saving power continues to transform us with every step we take. 
The two last things to take away from those closing verses. Jesus' resurrection life is proof of our reconciliation and our transformation. Reconciliation is the peace we have with God. Transformation is through that grace we get from God. Nothing takes away our peace. Nothing can hold back God's grace. So no matter what we face in this life, we know that we face it with him and through him. And he is with us. And his life is made known through ours. I I encourage you, church, we could spend several hours just on that passage. I encourage you to take that scripture home, study it, ring it out of all the grace and peace that is available for you. And may we begin to dwell on what it means to find resurrection life and what it means to have peace with God and have grace from God and how that leads us every step of the way, even in some of the most difficult steps we take. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for guiding us with your word so that we might receive all that you have for us. God, we marvel at your gift of salvation. The peace we have with you, the grace we receive from you, we are so thankful and we are so unworthy. Lord, thank you for this confidence you've given us tonight that we can rejoice knowing that you're gonna take us to the very end of our road. Even if it means through trials, we see them as mere stepping stones to get closer to you. Because it was at our weakest and at our worst that you poured out your love for us and that you punctuated your promise to us. Lord, would you now fill our hearts with this peace and this grace that we might live our lives from this holy place. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.